Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On February 21st, 1974, 18-year-old Peter Riley walked out of the Litchfield Correctional Facility in Connecticut and climbed into his best friend's family's car. Six months before, Peter had been arrested for allegedly murdering his mother, Barbara Gibbons. But now, thanks to a grassroots effort to raise his bail money, Peter Riley was able to walk free. As the car pulled out of the parking lot, Peter heard a strange, muffled sound, piercing the quiet evening. He lowered his window and the noise grew. Suddenly, he realized what it was. It was his former jailmate celebrating his release. Their cheering was loud enough to be heard almost half a mile from the small brick prison. As Peter disappeared down the dark and winding roads of rural Connecticut and the noisy celebration faded away, He felt like the nightmare of the last six months was finally over. But unfortunately for Peter, it was only getting started. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the murder of Barbara Gibbons. This week, we'll cover Peter Riley's trial and his fight to prove his innocence. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. On September 29, 1973, 18-year-old Peter Riley sat in an interrogation room and stared at a confession letter that police had placed in front of him. The paper claimed that he had brutally murdered his mother, Barbara, in their Connecticut home. But there was one problem. Peter Riley was innocent. After he had found his mother's bloodied body the night before, Peter called the police and ambulance for help. With no evidence in sight and no other witnesses, the officers on the scene felt they had no other choice but to consider Peter the main suspect. So they took him back to the barracks for questioning. But this was no normal interrogation. Over the next 24 hours, Peter was relentlessly threatened and berated by the police officers until the traumatized boy finally broke down. It had been a full day since he had last slept or eaten, and he was still reeling from discovering his mother's mutilated body. He was willing to do whatever it took to put an end to the marathon questioning. 
So he picked up a pen and signed his name to the confession. At around noon the next day, Peter sat in the back seat of a police cruiser as they drove to the Litchfield Correctional Center. His mind was still a blur. It was difficult for him to fully understand the gravity of the situation. As he rode, Peter kept trying to find different angles of viewing a situation to make it seem less severe. But as soon as he set foot in Litchfield cell number 32, his last shred of optimism vanished. He looked down at his prison-issued khaki jumpsuit, and then at the iron bed and flimsy mattress where he was supposed to sleep. It all seemed too terrible to be real. But the worst thing of all was that Peter felt alone. From the moment he discovered his mother's body until he stepped into his jail cell, he felt like he had been abandoned. He hadn't seen a single friend or family member step forward to protect him. It was as if the world had simply forgotten about him. But as it turned out, he was wrong. People had been trying to get in touch with Peter since the night of the murder. Unfortunately, the police were stonewalling them. Sergeant, good afternoon. Is Peter in? Riley. He's sort of like a son to me, and, well, we're really all he's got now that his mother's passed. So it's important that I speak to him. I'm afraid that's not possible right now. Well, is everything okay? Is he doing all right? He's doing fine, Mr. Maddow. It's not at the point where he might need an attorney, is it? No, sir. I can assure you everything is fine with Peter, and we will call you as soon as we're all wrapped up. But while the officers were tight-lipped with Peter's hometown friends, they were more upfront with Peter's only living relative, his aunt, June Gibbons. Hello, is this Miss Gibbons? Yes, this is her. Who's asking? I'm with the North Canaan Police Department. I'm sorry to inform you that your sister, Barbara, has been murdered. Oh, I Barbara? You'll have to give me a second. Of course. She has a boy, a son, Peter. Is he all right? Do you know where he is? Well, this is not easy to say, but... We have reason to believe that Peter is guilty of murdering his mother. I don't know if the family has an attorney, but if you do, we recommend contacting them immediately. Excuse me. That is ridiculous. Are you out of your mind? If you have any further questions, we recommend you come to the station as soon as possible. Good day. June had been estranged from Barbara for decades and had only seen Peter twice in the past 13 years, But still, she knew there was no chance that a kid like him had committed murder. And to the people in town who had known Peter his entire life, the news came as even more of a shock. Something was wrong, and they needed to get to the bottom of it. While the people of North Canaan tried to make sense of the chaos, Peter was simply trying to get some peace. He tossed and turned in his cell, drifting in and out of a restless slumber. At around 7 p.m. on Sunday evening, he was escorted to a common area. As Peter walked in, he caught the eye of Robert Earnhardt, a 45-year-old criminal who had spent almost half of his life behind bars. When Robert first saw Peter, it was as if he was staring at a vision of his younger self, terrified, alone, barely an adult, and entering the Litchfield Correctional Center for the first time. 
He immediately headed over to introduce himself, but he was stopped. Whoa, not so fast, Earnhardt. This kid is one you want to watch out for. Him? Looks like he couldn't hurt a fly. Maybe not a fly, but he offed his mother. What? There's no way. Oh yeah, big time. Her head was almost chopped clean off. Kid is a certified psychopath. Steer clear. Robert was familiar enough with the prison system to know that false convictions were at least possible, and this had to be one of them. One look at Peter was all it took for him to realize that kid needed help. Peter was uncontrollably shaking and staring off into space when Robert brought him a cup of coffee. The boy's thoughts were a mess. He talked himself in circles, trying to articulate just how he ended up in prison, but that wasn't important to Robert. He had just one piece of advice for Peter. Get a lawyer, kid. The two got a hold of a phone book and started scanning through attorneys in the area. Suddenly, a name caught Peter's eye, Catherine Rorabeck. The 53-year-old lawyer had made a name for herself as a civil rights activist. Newspapers referred to her as a champion of the underdog. That was just what Peter needed. Rorabeck heard about Peter's case, and she agreed to meet with him the very next day. When she arrived, Rorabeck asked Peter point-blank if he murdered his mother. Without hesitation, he said that he didn't. She immediately signed on to take his case. To Peter, it felt like he finally found the support he'd been missing. But he had no idea how much more was to come. Six days later, on November 5th, 1974, the state of Connecticut moved Peter's case to the Superior Court. As Peter stepped into the Litchfield Courthouse, the sight was enough to bring him to tears. Dozens of Peter's oldest and closest friends from North Canaan stood inside the courthouse. Everyone from his schoolmates to his priest to the principal of his high school showed up to speak in Peter's favor. Your Honor, I've known Peter since he was just a boy and he has not caused a single issue. He shows up to class every day, hands in his work on time, and is a loving friend to those around him. Peter has been a member of my parish for years. He is an ideal member of this community and we dearly want him back. It is truly where he belongs. He might as well be a son to me. No false charges could ever change that. I would welcome Peter into my home any day, any night. Whatever he needs, I will always be there for him. The judge was so moved by the outpouring of support Peter received from his community that he lowered Peter's bond to $50,000. And over the next few months, Peter's supporters grew in both size and determination. But so did his opposition. Coming up, Peter Riley stands trial for murder. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, 
heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. And now, back to our story. After 18-year-old Peter Riley was charged with the murder of his mother on September 28, 1973, his hometown in Connecticut took it upon themselves to come to his aid. Leading the charge was a local mother named Beverly King. Beverly was no stranger to cases like Peter's. Earlier that same summer, a local boy was arrested for arson. Beverly and other parents in the community knew that he was not a criminal. He just needed psychiatric help. So Beverly put together a committee to raise money and awareness and keep the boy out of jail. They succeeded and even had some money left over. Beverly decided to spend it on Peter's case. But that was just a start. Hello, mothers and fathers of North Canaan. It's a shame that we are forced to reckon with yet another miscarriage of justice in this town. But if the police continue to fail us, what choice do we have? Those of you who know Peter know that he is a kind and gentle boy, a boy who is not simply a member of this community, but a pillar. And in the wake of his loving, albeit difficult at times, mother, we must take the role of his parents, all of us, I know that any of you would do the same for your child in a heartbeat. This won't be easy. This will take months, maybe years. The money we need to raise is in the tens of thousands, but we can do it together as a community. And so Beverly's committee began holding weekly meetings at the local Methodist church. Although spirits were high, the reality of the situation quickly dawned on the group. None of the members were particularly wealthy, and raising $50,000 was no easy task. But still, they soldiered on, regularly holding bake sales, dances, concerts, and phone banking, all in hopes of making enough money to get Peter out of jail. During Peter's first months in prison, the only thing keeping him afloat was the knowledge that he had friends and family waiting for him on the other side of the correctional center walls. However, things got worse when Peter's only friend in jail, inmate Robert Earnhardt, was transferred to a state prison. By the time Robert got settled in, Peter's case had become national news. His fellow convicts were eager to hear details. So, you and the Riley kid were close? Yeah, that poor kid. I remember there was one day he just walked up to me with tears in his eyes. He couldn't say a word. He was just standing there like a lost kid looking for his mom at the mall or something. Man, that's rough. I felt for the kid, though. I really did. So I put an arm around his shoulder, and you should have seen it. 
It was like all the emotion he had tamped down just came flooding to the surface. Doesn't sound like what I've been reading. A bunch of the papers are saying that he was emotionless or something. That the police think it's him because he wasn't even crying at the crime scene. His own mom, mutilated. I mean, if that doesn't make you cry, then I don't know. Something's up. Oh, give me a break. The kid was in shock. I lost track of how many times I caught him weeping into his pillow. He's just a normal kid with some seriously bad luck. Now turn the game back on, will you? It seemed like just about everyone had an opinion about Peter's case. But in February 1974, he finally stood in front of the grand jury who would decide his fate. First, the prosecution opened their case with a series of statements that painted a disturbing picture of Peter and Barbara's relationship. The state was trying to spin a version of events that made it seem like Peter had reached some sort of breaking point with his mother and finally snapped. But once Catherine Rohrabach called some of her witnesses to the stand, it became clear that there was far more to the story. So you stated that you were interviewed by officers investigating this case. Interrogated. For hours and hours they were hounding me. On three separate occasions they called me into the station, a different detective every time. What was it that they were so intent on speaking to you about? Peter and Barbara's relationship. Now, Your Honor, I've known the two of them since Peter was just a little kid, so I can speak on their relationship with authority, but the police weren't happy with that. Can you elaborate? Every time I gave them an answer they didn't like, they'd go back to the beginning and start again. They knew exactly what they were doing, trying to wear me down just like they did to Peter. Eventually, I had to tell them that I wasn't going to fold. They weren't going to fool me. They came to my door and I kicked them off my property. As more witnesses stepped forward, it became clear that the police department led a deeply biased investigation. They worked around the clock, relentlessly interrogating the people of North Canaan for statements that fit their narrative. They needed to prove that Peter had reason to kill his mother. The father of one of Peter's closest friends reportedly approached a police officer after the first day of the trial to try and help the officers get back on track. It didn't go quite as well as he had hoped. Hey, officer, you got a second to talk? What is it, Maddow? You know it really doesn't have to be this way, right? I'll mind my business, and you mind yours. Sound good? I know you're just trying to do your job, but that's exactly right. And I don't think there's any more to say on the matter. Listen, I'm going to give you a piece of advice, and you can either take it or leave it. But you really should consider what the public thinks, how they're seeing this. This town used to respect the force. You're losing that respect, and you'll continue to lose it if you carry on this way. It is not my job to tell people what they want to hear. This is police work, something you would know nothing about. So unless you want to be charged for harassing an officer, I suggest you be on your way. Early on in the trial, the prosecution played Peter's taped interrogation and confession to the courtroom. The recordings were immediately met with disgust and outrage. Hearing officers take advantage of Peter's fragile and traumatized state felt like a clear abuse of power. The reporters in the courtroom were similarly incensed by the tapes. A photo of Peter and Barbara ran on the cover of the New Times magazine. The article made a clear case for his innocence. It ended with a Peter Riley Bond Fund's address and phone number. 
Soon, checks ranging from $5 to $100 began pouring in from places all across the country. But nothing could compare to the phone call the committee received a few days later. Hello, Peter Riley Bond Fund. How much money do you still need? Well, uh, we usually accept donations starting from $5. No, I don't think you understand. What is the total amount of money you need to get the boy released? Oh, uh, um, well, I'll have to double check, but I believe the balance is currently at $44,000. Very well. I'll have to move some money around, but I can have the check to you as soon as possible. Pardon? For all of it? A check should be fine, yes. Hold on. Who are you? Do you know Peter? No, no, I don't. But I know how it feels to see such a pure and innocent child treated so poorly by our justice system. I can't bear to see it happen again. I'd also like to remain anonymous, if you don't mind. Just like that, Peter's bond was fully paid. And so, after the day in court, he didn't drive back to Litchfield. He hopped into the Maddow family's car and returned home with them. And he would stay there until the trial had reached a verdict, one way or another. And while spirits were high, there was an undercurrent of dread in the car that night. Peter may have avoided more jail time, but he was not out of the woods yet. And as it turned out, things were about to take a turn for the worse. Coming up, a verdict is reached, and Peter Riley receives help from some unexpected places. And now, back to our story. Peter Riley's trial in North Canaan, Connecticut, started just a few days before his 19th birthday in February of 1974. It was a bittersweet way to mark his passage into adulthood, and one that he was glad to be able to spend in the company of his close friends. Things in his trial seemed to be looking up, too. His lawyer, Catherine Rohrabach, felt confident. And when the prosecution rested their case abruptly on March 26th, her certainty only grew. Rohrabach was waiting for some big reveal from the prosecution, the one piece of evidence that would inextricably link Peter to the death of his mother. But that moment never came. The police barely had evidence tying Peter to the crime. When the defense took over, Rohrabach immediately filed a motion to dismiss all charges. The motion was denied, but Rohrabach was just beginning. Over the next 16 days, Rohrabach called upon an array of witnesses, ranging from the Maddows to state troopers and even a doctor who had conducted a number of psychiatric evaluations on Peter. She was able to weave a rich tapestry of Peter's life and character through these testimonies. They all pointed to the teenager's innocence. But unfortunately, Rohrabach's statements sometimes leaned a bit too much on emotion rather than fact. On April 11, 1974, attorneys from both sides made their final statements. Prosecutor John Bianchi summarized the prosecution's case with a matter-of-fact precision. Catherine Rohrabach took the exact opposite route. During the portions of her closing statement where she discussed Peter's innocence, 
She put her hands on his shoulders and showed an almost inappropriate maternal presence with the boy. She may have gotten a bit lost in the theater of it all. A few minutes before 1 p.m., the jury left their seats and vanished behind a door to deliberate. Over 24 hours later, the jury still was unable to reach a unanimous decision. But in the afternoon of April 12th, they finally returned with a verdict. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we find the defendant guilty of manslaughter in the first degree. The color drained from Peter's face as he listened. He hung his head and remained silent. According to the jury, it was more likely that Peter had killed his mother in a rage blackout than some random criminal had broken into the cottage and killed her. It was a tremendous defeat. The media pounced on the story. Many of Peter's closest allies were quick to give statements. We all left that courtroom today knowing good and well that the justice system has failed us today. A murderer is out walking the streets freely, and an innocent boy has been falsely convicted of murder. I don't know what the world has come to. None of us can believe it. Peter Riley was not the only one sentenced today. Our whole parish, myself, the Lord, we all faced that sentence alongside him. And the reporter's account of the trial, particularly of the prosecution, were equally scathing. According to the police, Riley transformed himself from a teenage kid coming home from a carefree gathering into a fiend incarnate. This monster stayed quietly at the scene where he murdered his mother and waited for justice to take its course. Throughout the case, Riley was accused of trampling over his mother's legs and doing sundry other things after calling for an ambulance. Airtight logic. The committee that had fought so hard to protect Peter for the past six months was not about to give up now. A meeting was held the next day to discuss next steps. We need to send letters to the judge asking for an appeal. They should state that enough harm has been done to Peter, that he will face far more harm in prison than if he were to simply be returned to his community. They'll just get tossed. Yeah, plus we don't want to sound like we don't respect the court's decision. Well, we don't! We can't just go on without saying anything. They need to know that we won't take this line down. Otherwise, we're right back where we started. Soon, the meeting cooled down and the committee agreed to do what they had been doing for Peter with twice as much dedication. They threw lavish events to help fundraise. None of it went unappreciated to Peter. But he knew that in a few weeks, he could be sent away for life in prison. On May 24th, 1974, the bleak weather outside suited the situation perfectly. Once inside the courtroom, Peter was prompted to give a personal statement. His arms were stiff, his hands were shaking. He reminded the court that he was not a threat to society. All he wanted was a chance to live a normal and decent life. Then he slunk back down into his seat. Finally, the judge spoke. Taking everything into consideration, it is the decision of this court that you be imprisoned in the Connecticut Correction Institution for a term no less than six, nor more than 16 years. The silence was broken by a choir of Peter's closest friends sobbing. Bond was set at $60,000. Peter was escorted out of the building in shackles. However, Peter wasn't in his jail cell for more than 20 minutes before a guard came to tell him to grab his things. 
The money had been raised and he was going home. The committee had once again succeeded in saving Peter Riley from disappearing into the prison system, but they were not out of the woods yet. By 7 p.m. that night, he was back with the Maddows. But Peter knew that if he wanted it to stay that way, his attempt to appeal the sentencing needed to succeed. An appeal in a murder case such as this was highly unusual, so Peter was going to need more help than ever before. There was no way of knowing it at the time, but help was already on the way, from a source that no one could have anticipated. As it turned out, 60-year-old playwright Arthur Miller had heard of Peter's trial. He was immediately gripped by the boy's story. Miller knew that the committee working to help Peter was in need of more money and influence, so he took it upon himself to get involved. Miller recruited fellow playwright William Styron to host a fundraising event. The guest list touted names like Mike Nichols, Renata Adler, and other prominent figures in the literary and film world. Word spread, and pretty soon checks were being sent to the Riley Committee signed by everyone from Dustin Hoffman to Art Garfunkel. Elizabeth Taylor even sent hers with a personal note for Peter. But Miller knew that if Peter was going to win this appeal, he was going to need more than just money. He also enlisted the help of his friend T.F. Gilroy Daly, former United States attorney during the Kennedy administration. Daly agreed to take on the case at a severely lowered rate. He was as drawn to the case as Miller, but also viewed it as an indispensable career opportunity. Daly was smart enough to know that if he could win this thing, he would secure his place in history. The seasoned lawyer knew that what they needed in order to get a petition for Peter's retrial was newly discovered evidence. This was no easy feat, and certainly not one that could be accomplished by a lawyer and a playwright. So Peter's new task force quickly added a private investigator named Jim Conway. Miller would work on community work and fundraising, Daly would focus on legal strategy, and Conway would head out to Canaan and snoop around for any potential new leads on evidence. But Conway wasn't in Canaan long before he also got a taste of what Peter was up against. Hey there, I'm looking to speak with a lieutenant. He around? You, Conway? That P.I. who's been snooping around? Snooping around? You mean doing my job? Listen up. I'm telling you this for your own good. Stay out of here and mind your business. Are you telling me to stop my investigation? Under whose authority? Where do you get off? Buddy, I'm just trying to help you out. Go find something else to do. Wise up. But Conway wasn't discouraged. He kept digging and soon uncovered his first real clue, Barbara Gibbons' wallet. Apparently, it was discovered within walking distance of her home six weeks after her murder. For some reason, this was never disclosed by the state in court. And that wasn't all. After digging around town for a few days, Conway was pointed in the direction of Tim Parmalee, a troubled young man just a few years older than Peter, who had a known grudge with Barbara Gibbons. His fingerprints also happened to have been found on Barbara's doorknob. While Conway was out on the streets collecting hard evidence, Daly was going over state attorney John Bianchi's case for any holes. The first thing to jump out at him was the pathologist who claimed that Peter was capable of committing this murder. 
both based on the window of time it had to have occurred and the boy's physical ability to inflict her wounds. Daly got a hold of a new pathologist who contradicted those statements. Judging by the brutal nature of Barbara's injuries, the man thought that it was likely caused by multiple people, not just one. Daly's last trick up his sleeve was enlisting the help of a psychiatrist and experienced hypnotist, who also happened to be a friend. This was a long shot, but Daly thought that perhaps if they could gain some insight into Peter's subconscious, they could dig up some useful information. The psychiatrist was able to say with professional certainty that the boy showed no inclinations to lie at any point. Initially, this was dismissed as trivial information, but a respected medical professional willing to testify on behalf of Peter's honesty could prove to be a massive asset in court. Peter Riley's appeal began in the early spring of 1976. Right off the bat, Daly proved to be a formidable opponent to John Bianchi. His searing offense was helped greatly by a last-minute discovery of new evidence from Jim Conway. There has been a substantial new development in this case, Your Honor. Go on, Mr. Daly. In going over the initial crime scene reports, we found that there was a fingerprint discovered on Miss Gibbons' doorknob. After forensic analysis, we have found that this print belongs to Tim Parmalee, a known associate of Miss Gibbons, and we have reason to believe that the two had a falling out not long before her death. I see. That is a compelling discovery. It is my feeling that it could and probably will lead to other discoveries, and will make it clear to the court that a motion for a retrial be granted. And sure enough, eight days later, the judge ruled that the fingerprint qualified as new evidence. It was looking like Peter was going to get a proper retrial. As the appeal went on, John Bianchi and the state's case began to look weaker than ever. In a last-minute scramble to bolster the prosecution's case, Bianchi requested that the transcript and recording of Peter's confession be recognized by the court as evidence. But by doing this, the court could now deliberate on whether or not the confession had been coerced. The psychiatrist Daly chose was the perfect man to highlight Peter's integrity and undermine the confession's legitimacy. Peter Riley walked into that interrogation room in pieces. Not only was he deeply traumatized, but at the time, the boy had aspirations of becoming a policeman. There are a litany of reasons that Peter responded the way he did, that he admitted to this crime. But honesty? Honesty was not one of them. He was under the influence of men he respected and looked up to. He was reeling from what would arguably be the most traumatic event of his entire life. I'd be shocked if any one of us here today would have acted any differently. After the psychiatrist finished giving his moving testimony, Daly stated that he had no further questions. The lawyer looked at Peter with a smirk. As if the moment wasn't sweet enough, the judge took it upon himself to chime in. While I won't speak quite yet to how your testimony will impact the future of this case, I wish to say that you are without question one of the most credible and well-informed expert witnesses I have heard in my years on the bench. Peter left the courtroom that day feeling more optimistic than he had in months. On March 25th, it was announced that he had been granted his retrial later that summer. Everyone knew that Peter still had to stand before the court once again, but now the odds were stacked in his favor. 
Then an unexpected tragedy struck. On August 22, 1976, State Attorney John Bianchi died of a massive heart attack. The man who had been leading the crusade against Peter for the past three years was gone. Peter had to believe that at some point the state would realize that this was a game that had gone on long enough, and it was time to admit the mistakes had been made. And as it turned out, Peter was right. The retrial began in October of 1976, with 31-year-old Dennis Santori taking Bianchi's place. Only a month later, after getting a mere taste of the insanity and chaos that existed within this case, Santori called for the charges to be dropped on the grounds of insufficient evidence. The case was dismissed right then and there. On the afternoon of Wednesday, November 24, 1976, Peter Riley was a free man. With all of this in mind, I believe that Peter Riley is innocent. All police had tying Peter to the murder was his appearance at the crime scene. There was no hard evidence or even probable cause. It seemed like police had either to admit to having no real leads or pin everything onto Peter. They chose the latter. I agree. Unfortunately, due to the prolonged nature of the trial, whoever did kill Barbara Gibbons had more than enough time to disappear into obscurity. And that is the real tragedy of this case. The way that the police and legal system exploited Peter completely eclipsed the fact that he lost the person closest to him. He barely had time to even grieve the death of his own mother before he was unfairly convicted for her murder. And thanks to law enforcement's unfair treatment of him, the true killer will never be brought to justice. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Guilty Until Proven Innocent by Donald S. Connery to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahue. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes... Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, Julian Smith, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>